Well, would you take the Word of God with me tonight and uh, turn to the book of Exodus and uh, chapter 20. Exodus and uh, chapter 20. Would you find your place here? We have been studying through the Ten Commandments. And so we've looked at a series within the Ten Commandments inside of the book of Exodus that we've been studying verse by verse. Uh, throughout the book, and we have placed a, an emphasis uh, in the Ten Commandments, and specifically not just on the letter of the commandments, but on the spirit of the commandments. And that's really what we want to emphasize. Jesus Christ, when He came on the scene, ev- evidently those who were the religious teachers of the day had uh, confined, had limited, had really nullified the commandments by the, their traditions. They Uh, We're living and emphasizing the letter and not the spirit of the commandments. Uh, When we who are saved, we are to uh, not serve in the oldness of the letter, but in the newness of the spirit. And we really want to capture the spirit of the commandments. We looked at the first four commandments, which are address man's relationship with God, and those come first, because our relationship with God is the most important relationship. Uh, This week at camp, uh, there was a series of messages, and the first one he talked about, as he says, we have relationship in this world. When you're born, you have a relationship with your parents. When you uh, grow up and you uh, get married, now you have a relationship with your wife, and then you have a relationship with your co-workers, and relationship, and life is about relationship, but the most important relationship is the relationship we have with God. And the first four commandments emphasize that. The uh, last six commandments address man's relationship with his fellow man. And he began with that first relationship. He says, honor thy father and thy mother. And really we find that all other relationships, the health of all other relationships are really dependent on how we get that first relationship right. It It is more likely for a young man who does not honor his father and mother to commit and to violate those other commandments. And so we are on the last commandment. And the last commandment is uh, thou shalt not covet. And we've looked at that and I'm going to give the second part of the message. Every, uh, some of you think, Pastor, you should have done every message in two parts because they were too long. All right. Uh, I'm doing this one in two parts and I uh, hope that it's been helpful. So let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Exodus chapter 20. We're going to read verse 17. Exodus 20 verse 17. If you're able to stand. Notice with me Exodus chapter 20 verse 17. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. The commandment is thou shalt not covet. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this evening for your word. Lord, help us to be instructed not just on what is covetousness, but Lord, help us to be instructed as to how we can counter the spirit of covetousness with the spirit of contentment. Lord, help us to develop in our lives uh, those uh, positive virtues uh, that we might live by them so as to not give in to covetousness. 
and to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. So instruct us by your Spirit and your Word this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As I mentioned last week, this message is in two parts. And in the first part, I went about to answer a number of questions with regards to the subject of covetousness. We asked, first of all, what is covetousness? And just by way of reminder, because it is important for us to set that first so that we can counter the opposite positive virtue, and we talked about how covetousness is identified as a sin of the heart. Uh, It is not in the sense of uh, thou shalt not uh, kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal. Those are acts that men commit, but covetousness is first and foremost identified as a sin of the heart. Covetousness is also fueled by the lust of the eyes, and we see that throughout the Word of God, that man is uh, encouraged to be covetous by what he sees. The Bible talks about the lust of the eyes, and so covetousness is fueled by the lust of the eyes. We also noted that covetousness is found in the mind that is primarily occupied with earthly possessions. And what I mean by that is that we're, it's not that we are not occupied with earthly things. We have houses and cars and bills to pay. We have to be occupied with those things. But covetousness is found in the mind that is primarily occupied with those things. We also noted that covetousness is subtle because it is seldom recognized by the transgressor of covetousness. It'd be easy to identify it when you steal something. says, well, I have stolen, or uh, you've committed the act of adultery to identify that act as being wrong. But covetousness is is not an act towards somebody else or on somebody else. It's something that you do yourself, and because of that, it is seldom recognized by the transgressor. And we live by a philosophy that says, well, as long as I don't hurt anyone, then I'm okay. But also, we talked about how covetousness is an act of worship that violates the first commandment. The New Testament says that covetousness is idolatry. It doesn't say it is like idolatry. He says it is idolatry. And then we talked about what covetousness does. And we find in the Word of God that covetousness chokes out the ministry of the Word. It deadens one's love for his neighbor, and love for your neighbor is what helps you to fulfill the law, but also covetousness takes over the heart with affection for the worldly, robbing God of the affection and the service that is rightfully due unto Him alone. That's what covetousness does in the heart of man. And we also mentioned how serious is the sin of covetousness, and we noted that it is covetousness is a characteristic of a life of the life of the unregenerate man. It forfeits one's opportunity to church leadership. We find that for both the pastor and the deacon, that those who are covetous are not to be given that position. And we also noted that covetousness is grounds for separation among another, uh, with another believer. You're not to uh, sit down with a man who is covetous, the New Testament tells us. But also we noted that it is included as a characteristic of perilous times, that men will be covetous lovers of their own selves. We're going to cover now the second part. The first part was 
we might say the negative emphasis of the commandment, but every commandment also has a positive emphasis. When God says, thou shalt not do this, we also understand that there's something on the other side that says, therefore you must do this. And the Christian life is not defined by just something that is negative. It is primarily defined by something that is positive. It's not what we do not do. The Christian life is defined by what we do do. In other words, when we think about the Christian life, often if we're not careful, we tend to think of the Christian life in this sense, well, I'm a Christian, so I can't. And then you fill in the blank. And instead, we ought to think of the Christian life and say, no, because I'm a Christian, I get to do this. And at the end of that is something positive, not just something negative. Now, the Christian life is both a negative one and a positive one. And sometimes, if we're not careful, we try to exclude one of the other, but they are both true. So let's emphasize here the opposite positive virtue of covetousness, and I already gave it to you last week. Last week it is contentment. Now turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Hebrews in chapter 13. In the New Testament, the book of Hebrews and chapter 13. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to lay out the truth of contentment, how it stands opposite to covetousness. Uh, Then we're going to uh, visit some portions of Scripture that show us what happens when somebody is covetous so that we can identify that and then so that we can do the opposite of those things. If we're going to learn to do the opposite of covetousness, we have to know in our own lives what covetousness looks like. See, one of the troubles in our lives we have is that uh, we hear about covetousness, but the trouble we have is we have the trouble of identifying covetousness in our own lives. And it's just manifested in many ways, many ways. I was uh, speaking last week, just so, so you know, for me personally, and it will be different in, in, for different uh, uh, people, but I was talking to Brother Ryan last week as, as a pastor, you know, when you're uh, years looking for a church building, uh, when I drive different places, I drive through the city and I look and I say, man, that's a beautiful church building. And then you go down the street another mile and say, wow, that's a beautiful church building. And then you go another mile and say, man, wow, that's, if we could have that building, that'd be great. How do you know whether something is covetous or not? There are things that we have that are not in and of themselves. A beautiful building is not bad in and of itself. How do we know whether we have a covetous heart? And it is uh, mainly laid out in this sense that covetousness is present in our lives when our minds and our hearts is set on something that we think that once we attain it, then we will be satisfied. That is covetousness. You see, a church building may not in itself be something evil, but if I think and my heart and my mind is set to, well, if we had that building, if only we got that, then I would be satisfied. Then that is covetousness. If you notice with me in Hebrews chapter 13, and uh, notice with me verse 5, he gives really some final instructions to them as he's written to them this lengthy letter. But in verse 5, he says this, Let your conversation be 
without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And so we notice here in the scriptures that there is a contrast between a conversation with covetousness and for us to be content with what we have. And here is the opposite positive virtue put forth with the 10th commandment. Thou shalt not covet. Here's the opposite positive virtue. Be content with, with such things as ye have. We have to learn as Christians to cultivate contentment in our own lives. Be content with what you have. If you turn with me in the next portion to 1 Timothy chapter 6, in the book of 1 Timothy in chapter 6, he speaks again here about uh, covetousness and contentment. And I want you to notice in 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we'll begin reading in verse 5. Let me give you the point and then we'll expound on that. Contentment is birthed first in a correct understanding of life. Contentment is birthed first in the correct understanding of life. Paul, as he's writing to Timothy, he's telling Timothy to pass along this instruction to the church at Ephesus. And here's what he says to him in verse 5. Perverse disputings of men of corrupt mind and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. Verse 5. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. Uh, but they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after... They have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Uh, the Apostle Paul here, as he's telling Timothy to instruct the believers in the church to be godly and content, and he says that is great gain, he uh, puts forth to Timothy some principles that no doubt he is to carry to the believers at Ephesus and say here's what they need to understand about life so that they will not be covetous. Uh, you see, covetousness is really hard to identify in our lives unless we have a proper understanding of what life is about. We talked about how last week Jesus gives a parable of a rich man, and he says, Beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. What Jesus says is that is not what life is about. Now Paul lays forth some principles for Timothy that he is to communicate to the believers at Ephesus. Let me give you those principles. Principle number one, we own nothing. That's what he says in verse 7. For we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out. He is saying here, in essence, this principle 
Tell the people they don't own anything. They come into this world with nothing. They leave this world with nothing. Job put it this way, naked came out of my mother's womb, naked shall I return. And so we understand that life really is about this. Life is about a stewardship. We are not possessors. We are stewards. God owns everything and we are simply entrusted by God. And by the way, that's with all of life. When we think about children, the Bible says children are the heritage of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is His reward. And so we understand here that children do not belong to the parents. They belong to God. But the parent has been entrusted with the care of the children. Uh, the money we make, the possessions we have, we know that we are not owners of those things. Why? Because when we die, those things go to somebody else. You've read about the Pharaohs in Old Testament times. You even read about today how rich people want to be buried with some of their treasure. I heard of a rich man who got buried in, in his car. He wanted the car, him and his car, buried under the ground thinking that somehow he carries his possessions with him and he didn't recognize that he was not a possessor. He leaves this world with nothing. And so principle number one, we own nothing. By the way, this is very important because if that is not our perspective, we will be quick to become covetous. To say, well, if life is about possession, I need to get more. You see how that tends and encourages covetousness? Principle number two, he, he it really communicates to them in verse eight. He says, mark the difference, mark the difference between wants and necessities. Notice what he says in verse eight. Having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. Now notice what he says here. He wants them to mark the difference between wants and necessities. He says here, what is the standard where the people of God ought to find contentment? Notice, it is not found in that which they want. Contentment is to be found in that which they need. Food and raiment are the basic necessities of life. And he says that as a Christian, you ought to find contentment in those basic necessities. By the way, God says that He will provide for all our needs not our wants our needs and so mark the difference in our lives between wants and necessities principle number three verse nine he says but they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lust which drown men in, in, in destruction and perdition here's the third principle possessions can easily become life-consuming. Possessions can easily become life-consuming. He says, they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts. And so he's talking about how those who are rich, those who possess many things, those who are great... Uh, uh, holders of wealth in this world can easily become life-consumed, their life can become consumed with those earthly things. We should not think as Christians, well, if I have this type of wealth, then I fill in the blank. 
We have to be careful with that type of thinking. Why? Because we understand as Christians that if we did that type of health that we may dream about, then it might be a sure way for us to become completely consumed with those things. There's a fourth principle that he's teaching them. Verse 10, he says, For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Here's what he teaches about covetousness. Covetousness drives a man to wickedness. Why? Because we see here that covetousness, because of covetousness, he will forsake the doctrine of the word. That's what he says. The love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after they have erred from the faith. Here's what happens. Covetousness, we talked about how last week, covetousness chokes out the ministry of the word. We talked about when the seed falls among thorny ground, uh, it begins to grow, but then it is choked by the cares of the world and deceitful riches, and it dies. And so covetousness drives a man to wickedness, and because of covetousness, he will then forsake the doctrine of the word. He will also, because of covetousness, according to verse 10, he will drive a stake through his own soul. That's what he says. And they have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Now think about what it means here. He talks about covetousness, those who pursue riches. And when they're thinking about covetousness, that these are the things that they're going to be satisfied. These are the things that they're going to find happinesses and fulfillment and, and joy and peace. They end up doing the exact opposite of what they desire for those things to produce. What they thought would fulfill their souls ends up piercing their soul and hurting them more than helping them. Boy, how we find that to be true in our world today. Think about those who are chasing after fame and riches. Uh, look, uh, look around at Hollywood. And, well, don't look around at Hollywood and the crowd. They're not a good example. But you know how many of them live a miserable life? How many of them are on countless depression, uh, depress, antidepressants and all those things? How many of them through the years have committed suicide? How many examples do we need to find that riches do not help people, they destroy the soul? And so those are the principles that Paul tells Timothy to communicate to those who are believers in the church. And so we learn here that contentment really is birthed first in the correct understanding of life. He says you, they need to have this understanding. They must have their understanding that we own nothing. That we have to mark the difference between our wants and our necessities. And that possessions can easily become life-consuming. But also that covetousness drives a man to wickedness teach the church those things. We also know from the Word of God that contentment is put to death when lust is allowed to prevail. I talked about how last week that covetousness, you, you think about covetousness and it is mentioned in the New Testament, but what is, how, in what way is covetousness manifested in our lives? It is manifested by our lust. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. It's a desire to, 
to do something outside of God's will, is a desire to have something outside of God's will, is a desire to be someone that is outside of God's will. And so covetousness is mainly manifested in the lust. And all throughout the New Testament, the New Testament says you have to put the lust of the flesh to death. To death. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians in chapter 10. I turned those off uh, during the prayer meeting. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, notice with me in verse 6. The Bible says here, and, and by the way, he refers back to uh, the children of Israel in the wilderness after they were delivered from Egypt. In uh, verse 1, he talks about those who were under the cloud. They passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat. He's talking about the manna that came from heaven and did all drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that uh, followed them and that rock was Christ. Uh, but with many of them God was not well pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Verse 5, verse 6. Now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Now, hold your place here. He's talking about the Old Testament example. And he says, they lusted after those things, evil things. Verse 7, he says, neither be idolaters as were some of them. Well, we know they were idolaters. We saw that in the Old Testament. But turn with me, if you hold your place here, to what he mentions in Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11. What is he referring to numbers chapter 11 notice with me verse 1 let's begin reading in verse 1 numbers 11 verse 1 i i, I want to try to examine here what led to their discontentment now here's why i'm saying this they left egypt you remember wherever they go no water God gave them water. No food, God gave them food. They go on and they, they reach uh, the edge of the promised land. They, uh, because of their lack of faith, they, they did not take the land as God intended them for the take. And so they're going to, that whole generation is going to die. They're going to uh, go through the wilderness wanderings for 40 years. And every single day, despite their disobedience, despite their unfaithfulness, God is going to give them daily all that they need. Now, I want you to think about this. Those who we're going to read about had all they needed. What happened to them? What brought about their covetousness, this discontentment? What is it that brought that about? Notice with me in Numbers 11, verse 1. And when the people complained, it displeased the Lord, and the Lord heard it, and His anger was kindled. Now, I want to stop here. The Bible says, when the people complained. Have you ever complained? It's, uh, we don't need to have a hand-raising session here. We've all complained. It is our tendency to complain. It is natural for us to complain. This is not anything foreign to us. I just want to see how this happens. How does it happen? When the people complained, it displeased the Lord, and the Lord heard it, and His anger was kindled, and uh, the fire of the Lord burnt among them, and consumed them that were in the uttermost parts of the camp. 
And the people cried unto Moses, and when Moses prayed unto the Lord, the fire was quenched, and he called the name of the place at Taberah, because the fire of the Lord burnt among them. And the mixed multitude that was among them fell a lusting. And the children of Israel, were in verse 4, also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? We remember the fish, which we did eat in Egypt freely. The cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all beside this manna before our eyes. And the manna was as coriander seed and the color thereof as the color of delium. God was not angry with them because the food itself was evil. There's nothing evil about food, is there? No, no, God was angry with them because they wanted them so much that they wished they could go back to Egypt. You see, they wanted the food in Egypt more than the manna that God provided. Instead of being grateful for what God did give them, they murmured and were discontent and placed a priority on the temporal, the material benefits that they wanted to experience at that moment. You see, giving ourselves over to lust always leads to discontentment. Giving ourselves over to lust always leads to discontentment. I want you to notice two things. The first of all, we see them lusting. I'm going to emphasize here, we could think about lusting, but uh, the, the idea of lust is to, to strongly desire, to crave, to think, uh, to try to find fulfillment in those things. It means longings, desires. Uh, it is the affection that we have for earthly things, uh, including immoral thoughts, but uh, it's used in the, really in a broad way. We should not think of lusting just in the sense of that's talking about immorality. It's much more broad than that. It's the things that we long for. I want to see not just what lust is, but how uh, or what behavior is identified in their lives after the Bible says they lusted. Notice the Bible says in verse 4, And the mixed multitude that was among them fell a-lusting, and the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? We remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt freely. Would you notice there are two things that we find here when they were lusting. Two things that are evident in their lives. First of all, their emotions prevailed. Their emotions prevailed. If you notice, now by the way, we know that they had manna every day. In other words, the day today, on that day, when they murmured against God, that same morning, they saw the manna as every other day. It was there. They saw it. God had been faithful to do what He said He would do for them until they reached the promised land. But here what we find when they fell a lusting, what happens to them, the Bible says that they wept again and said... 
Now, wept again. Notice verse 4, wept again. What, happens, what happened earlier in the chapter? Well, back to verse 1. And when the people complained. <laughs> so they complained. And now the Bible says they wept again. In this sense, they complained again. But now they're emotional about it. Wait a minute. Don't they have food to eat? They do. But they're complaining. Their emotions are prevailing. Whenever we are given over to lust, our emotions always prevail. They always do. We live by impulse instead of being controlled by the Spirit of God and being content. We, we live by impulse and we, we see something and we have to have it now. Uh, there, is, there is no logic that says, well, I wonder if I could do without. Could, could they do without the garlics and the leeks and the onions and the melons and the cucumbers? They could do without. But they didn't want to do without anymore. Their emotions prevailed. When we have given over ourselves to lust and discontentment sets in, Emotions will always prevail. We have to be very careful. It's good when things happen in our lives to take a moment, to step back, and to not live by impulse. Have you ever done something or bought something, and the moment after you bought it, you regretted it? Oh, that happens all the time. And often if we look back, we will say, well, it's true for every time I was too emotional about it. I made an impulsive decision. I said something by impulse. We are given over to lust. Emotions prevail. But not only did their emotions prevailed, but we see that their memories also failed. Uh, they say in, in verse 5, We remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt freely, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. It's interesting the word choice that they use. We did eat in Egypt freely. Um, they weren't free. They weren't free. Somewhere along the line, their memory failed them. I'm sure that we may all know somebody who for some time has maybe served God. And throughout their lives they've been taught the right thing. They've even experienced some things in their lives that we would say, they would have said, I will never again repeat that mistake. I will never again fall into this or that. And yet, somewhere along the line they fall back into the same sin or they repeat the same decision and we say, how can that be? Don't they know? Don't they remember? That's what happened when you're giving over yourself to lust. Your memory will fail you. In other words, because the, uh, giving yourself over to lust and to your urges somehow does something, renders you incapable of making a reasoned decision. 
Your memory fails you. You cannot look back and use what you've, what you've gone. That's how blinding lust is in our lives. That's how overwhelming covetousness can become in our lives because now they're craving something so badly. They're fixated in their minds and in their hearts on something so badly that they are incapable of remembering what it was that they wanted to get away from. They lusted. Their emotions prevailed. Their memories failed. And they became discontent. Notice what they say in verse 6. But now our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all beside this manna before our eyes. That's the expression of their discontentment. We see they lusted, their emotions prevailed, their memories failed, and now they are completely discontented. They are so covetous, so consumed with what uh, their mindset is about Egypt and what it was, and it's not. By the way, when they left Egypt, what was the land like? It was barren. There was nothing left. But they, they just can't see that. Why? Their urges are so strong. They can no longer think. I want you to notice here their discontentment. First of all, they counted. How do we know when we're discontent? Here is how we know. Number one, they counted God's provision as nothing. They counted God's provision as nothing. Notice what they say. Our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all. Well, wasn't there something? Well, yes, there was something. There was the manna, a miracle from God that very morning. And they look at the manna. They have the manna in their houses, and they say, there is nothing at all. May God help us when we look at our own lives and we look around us at what God has given us in our houses and the cupboards and the clothes and everything that we have and somehow in our lives we become discontented and our heart and our spirit says there is nothing when our houses are full. When God has blessed us beyond measure, when God has not given us just what we need but He's also given us things that we want, and we say there is nothing. You're discontented. They counted God's provision as nothing. Secondly, they saw God's provision as distasteful. Notice what they say. There is nothing at all beside this manna. Now, they just contradicted themselves. Can't say there's nothing and then there's something. But that's what they said. There's nothing at all except this manna. Do you hear... I don't, we don't have the tone, but you can picture the tone with me. There is nothing at all except this manna. The very thing that God used to sustain them is the very thing that they disdained. The thing that they used to pray for and ask for God to give them bread is the very same thing that they asked for, that God gave them, that now they disdain. The very same thing. You know when we become discontented? This is true. We've prayed for things, God has given us those things, and now we are no longer satisfied with those very things that God has given us. We are in a state of discontentment. 
They counted God's provision as nothing. They saw God's provision as distasteful. But also they longed for something beyond what God had provided. They longed for something beyond what God had provided. Notice, there is nothing at all beside this manna here before our eyes. So what are they saying? We want more. We want something else. We want something better. We want something that we think is better for ourselves. We want, let me put it this way, in the uh, mind of a child, we want something, I want something that will make me happy. That is the spirit of covetousness. I enjoy eating, I'm sure you do too. If they go back to Egypt and somehow they found, find in this barren land and leeks and garlic and melons and cucumbers and all those things, are those things in and of themselves going to make them happy? No. Here is the spirit of covetousness. If that was true, they would return back to Egypt and have all those things they desired for. When they got the melons and the cucumbers and the leeks and the garlics and all those things, that's why they're going to want more. That's what covetousness always does. It is never satisfied. You know what Proverbs uh, tells us? Proverbs chapter 27, 20 says this, Hell and destruction are never full, so the eyes of man are never satisfied. Never satisfied. You see, that's the problem with covetousness that often man doesn't perceive that he begins to covet and to desire something, and when he receives that thing, then he wants to go on into something else. Why? Because the things of this world are incapable of satisfying the soul of man. They are not capable of doing that. By the way, only God is capable of doing that. That is why covetousness is the sin of idolatry. It is man groveling after the things of this world, thinking that he's going to find satisfaction which can only be found in God. So we see that contentment is birthed first in a correct understanding of life. It is put to death. Uh, contentment is put to death when lust is allowed to prevail. But I'd like to add in with this question, how can contentment be cultivated in our lives? How can contentment be cultivated in our lives? Well, first of all, we must develop the habit, of, the habit of thankfulness. We must develop the habit of thankfulness. If you go with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Someone says, well, um, Pastor, you know what God's will is for my life? And, there, and if you're talking in terms of uh, what the Lord wants you to do or where He wants you to go, I, uh, I'm not going to be certain about this. But if you ask me, Pastor, what should I do in my life? What is God's will for my life that I do today? I can answer that question. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 gives us that answer. He says in verse 16, Rejoice evermore. Verse 17, Pray without ceasing. Verse 18, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Here is God's will for our lives. In everything, give thanks. Now, I want you to note the language that the Bible uses. He doesn't say, for everything, give thanks. He says, in everything, give thanks. Tragedy comes in your life. You don't thank God for the tragedy. 
you thank God in the tragedy. There's a difference. In other words, whenever tragedy, uh, tragedy strikes, there is something that we can still thank God for. That's God's will for our lives. You see, our tendency in the flesh is to look at what we don't have. Look at what others have and crave those things that others have and thinking that when we have those things and if we have those things and we would be satisfied just like they seem to be satisfied, although they're not and, and, and we don't know their heart. But develop the habit of thankfulness. Peter Master says that the highway to covetousness is to lose appreciation for what He has provided for us. The first safeguard, therefore, against the virus of covetousness is to have a truly thankful spirit full of genuine gratitude and praise to God. Just thank God. Pastor, I don't have this, or this is what my life is like. And we look at those things. Let me remind you what God's will is for your life. In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. That is God's will for you. Something happens in your life. Say, Pastor, what do I do? Give thanks to God. That's God's will for your life. So I can't take that type of counsel. Maybe you've grown discontented. Cultivate, by the way, cultivate that in good times. So that in bad times it will be natural. You know, if we're not careful, we think that the idea is, okay, whenever bad things happen, then I need to be thankful then. No. Cultivate that in good times. So that when bad times come, you will already have the habit of thanking God. So first, develop the habit of thankfulness. Uh, secondly, learn to walk in the Spirit. Learn to walk in the Spirit. Now, now this is a, th that's quite a big one, but turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. How is covetousness manifest in the life of the believer? Through his lust. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 16. The Bible says, this I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The longings of the flesh, the desires of the flesh, the affection for earthly things, including immoral thoughts, those things. He says, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under law. For the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery. Fornication. Uncleanness. Lasciviousness. Idolatry. Witchcraft. Hatred. Variance. Emulations. Wrath. Strife. Seditions. Heresies. Envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Here's what he says. Against such there is no law. If you walk after the Spirit, 
it deals with the sin of covetousness. Walk in the Spirit, it says, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. In other words, the Christian life is not just, okay, I'm trying not to covet, I'm trying not to covet, I'm trying not to covet. No. The concentration of the believer is not just on what he must deny, but it's also on what he must pursue. You see, the idea of walking in the Spirit shows that there is a purposefulness in our lives. Uh, in other words, put it this way, uh, walking in the Spirit includes putting spiritual service first in our lives. You see, if a believer has no avenue of service for the Lord, no sacrifice, no commitment, then it is too easy for the believer's emotional energy to be poured into personal needs and aspirations. Such a Christian will become easy prey for covetous desires. You see, the Christian is intentional and purposeful about walking in the Spirit, about serving God. And when he gives himself over to those things, it is a natural counter to what is natural to his flesh. Covetousness. Learn to walk in the Spirit. Thirdly, put to death covetous desires. Uh, here in uh, notice verse 24 of the same chapter, Galatians 5.24, And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh, notice, with the affections and lusts. Crucified. So, put to death covetous desires. Uh, again, the word lust means the, the longings, the desires, the affection for earthly things, the pursuit of those things, uh, with the mindset of, that if you attain those things, they will satisfy and give you peace and meet uh, uh, satisfy the longing that you have. He says the same in Ephesians 4.22 that she put off concerning the former conversation, the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. The old man is corrupt according to the deceitful lust. And so we have to crucify covetousness. Let me try to be specific here about covetousness. Covetousness is not just, oh, I, I, I see this car, I want that car. Or I wish I had this amount of money in my bank account. No, covetousness is manifested in every single facet of our lives. We could think, well, I, I don't like my life right now. And you want a better life. Whatever that means for you. I want a better job. I wish I had better children. I, I'm not saying that about you all. I'm just giving an illustration. My children are looking at me like. Covetousness says, I'm longing for something. I'm not satisfied with where I am now. I want something more. I want something out. I want something Better, looking for satisfaction everywhere in this world outside of God. Outside of God. You have to put to death those ideas. Um, which brings us to the next point. Learn to control your thought life. See where your mind wanders. 
Think about what you think about. <laughs> Pay attention to what you, where your mind goes. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Notice with me verse 22. He says, now Paul writes to Timothy and he says this, Flee also youthful lusts. Flee youthful lusts. He, Paul is writing to Timothy and he's not just talking about uh, immorality, lust, d desires, cravings, longings in your life. So here's what Paul in effect tells Timothy. Uh, Timothy, when you begin to daydream, maybe Timothy you're daydreaming about a church that has no problems. Church in Ephesus was filled with problems. That's why he wrote to Timothy to deal with those problems. Flee youth lost. When you begin to daydream, when that begins in which you are at the center stage, when people admire you, when people admire your gifts, then flee from those thoughts. Transfer your thinking to something else. Run from it as you were running from impending doom. Flee these things. Youthful lust. Beware of where your mind takes you, of what, of what you wished your life was like. By the way, we can even be covetous. Youthful lust is thinking about where you want to be in the future, but you can also do the reverse. When you're old in years and you look back in your life and says, well, I wish my life looked like that in retrospect. And you can be covetous about that as well. Instead of being content with where you are right now. Thinking that, again, if my life had been different, then today I would be satisfied. No, you wouldn't. Because if you're discontented today, there's nothing in your past that would make you content today. Absolutely nothing. Romans 6, 12 says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Romans 13, 14, Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. See, the world of daydreaming is the birthplace and the cradle of covetous desires. The world of daydreams is the birthplace the birthplace and the cradle of covetousness. That's where covetousness begins and that is where covetousness is cultivated in the mind. So how do we know whether covetousness is present in our lives? I think we could say what I'm saying in many different ways but then they put it this way, covetousness is present if we accept covetousness is present if we accept the lie that once we attain the material, that that will bring satisfaction. It's a lie. That is idolatry. And when we believe that lie, we are covetous. If you dream about something and you set your goal and you pursue that thing and if you don't attain it, where does that leave you? 
Are you okay with it? I was thinking <laughs> about the potential building. If we don't get it, where does that leave me? Where does that leave us? Are we okay with it? We better be okay with it. Let's be content with what God has given us. The moment we be, we're not okay with it is the moment when we know that we are covetous. Thinking that once we get that thing, then we will have arrived. And the truth is, when we get there, then you want something greater or you want something else. It only takes a little bit of time. A little bit of time. I've ex- maybe you've experienced that with cars. You see a car, you buy it, and you get it. And after a few months, it gets old. Shoes, clothing, all those things. We have to cultivate a spirit of contentment in each one of our lives. Identify when we are being covetous. It's an invisible sin to the world. But we know when it's in our lives and we learn to identify it and cultivate the opposite positive virtue.